The safe space we offer for today's protests is no longer safe for anybody. So with my support, the Salt City Police Last year, Utah and the rest of the nation saw a summer of protests. There were calls for defunding or abolishing the police. But the conversation didn't end there. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. This week on 45 Days, we're talking about police reform. Police reform is a complicated issue, and pretty much everyone has a different opinion about it. In a bit, we'll hear from a Black Lives Matter activist, as well as the head of the Utah Fraternal Order of Police. And when it comes to police reform in the legislative session, there's a list of about a dozen or so related bills. And those are just the ones that have been introduced so far. That shows this is an issue lawmakers have taken note of. Emily, why do you think that lawmakers are paying so much attention to this issue now? Well, Sonia, I think we need to go back to last summer. Police killed George Floyd in Minneapolis, and that led to the first big protest in Salt Lake City in May, when thousands of people took to the streets to protest. But it also hit home for Utahns because just a couple of days before George Floyd died, Salt Lake City police killed Bernardo Palacios Carvajal. Welcome to 2 News at 5. We're following breaking news today after Salt Lake City police released some body cam video of a... So that was kind of bubbling under the surface. And then this big national outcry over George Floyd's death kind of pushed it over the edge. Right. And then there were protests around Bernardo's death. And these two instances kind of, you know, re-upped these past conversations and examples of police use of deadly force. The Washington Post has a database to keep track of all the people who were killed by police in each state. And according to that, Utah police have shot and killed 73 people since January 2015. So Bernardo's death is certainly not a new situation. But since the events this summer, there has been a kind of new continued momentum on addressing this issue. Yeah, I think that's what we've seen. And lawmakers have already passed some legislation to address it. Last year, they passed a ban on police chokeholds, and that was prompted by what happened to George Floyd. The Department of Public Safety has been meeting with legislators and police and different activists to talk about what police reform could possibly look like. And because of all that, you know, those discussions, some of these bills could actually pass, even though many of them are sponsored by Democrats. Yeah, that chokehold bill I remember over the summer was also sponsored by a Democrat and it went right through no problems. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, during the protests, there were also calls from activists and people marching in the streets to defund the police. But that phrase means different things to different people. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later. All right, let's take a step back. How exactly did the protests this summer evolve into those meetings and the bills that are in play on Capitol Hill right now? Sonia, I had that question, too. And to help answer it, I talked with Ray Duckworth. She's an organizer and vice president of the Black Lives Matter Utah chapter. She joined in 2019. 
A few months later, her cousin Bobby Duckworth was actually killed by police in Carbon County. Police were responding to a call about a suicidal man. I talked to her over Zoom, and her four-year-old was there too, just in case you hear some noises in the background. I started by asking her about last year's protest. I saw unity. I saw diverse unity. To be completely truthful, I saw pros and cons. You know, um, I saw people really like out there for the movement, for black people, for brown people. But then you see the people out there, too, who are there for clout. They think it's cool. Boredom in a pandemic. I saw everything. It was just a unique experience to be in Utah and see that because I'm a black woman in Utah. I've always been the oddball from the hair to the skin color. And my family's from Mississippi. They didn't really think that Utah would be fighting for injustices when it comes to racial inequalities. So it was pretty cool to see. I'm wondering what role you think last year's protests had in this year's police reform legislation. I think it caused people to take police reform seriously. I think it caused people to ask more questions than they were originally, which is always a good thing. There's no such thing as a dumb question. The protest really provoked people to like open their eyes and get out of this glass box or this ideology that sometimes we preset in Utah that, you know, there's no wrongdoing here. And like, we, we really live in like this glass box, but it's, it was beneficial for the community as a whole. We have seen quite a few police reform bills pop up this session. Does that kind of signify to you that lawmakers also took note or what, why do you think we're seeing that this year? I think they're they're listening to. Um, well, they have to. We elected them, so if they don't listen, then we get rid of them, right? That's what they were supposed to do, and, and they actually did it. It's crazy to think that there's so many police reform bills up on the Hill right now, but at the same time, it leaves that beautiful spark of hope that one might pass. And if one might pass, then one murder by police might get justice. What types of policies would Black Lives Matter Utah support? We want body cam footage, high resolution, unedited, with sound, available to um, the family who who loses loved ones in uh, police situations. We want them to get it within 10 days. And we are in favor of repealing HB 415. So HB 415 prevents the creation of citizen review boards for police. Why do you think that would be helpful? Because that puts the power back in the hands of the community. Currently, right now, it's, a, it's an appointed team, basically, that, that reviews. But the problem with that is uh, it's a conflict of interest. Um, if the mayor appoints the chief of police and then appoints this civilian review board, she's basically saying, oh, the left hand made a mistake. That's OK. My right hand's got my, my left hand's back. Like, it's just it's conflicting. It doesn't make any sense. And I can't believe that we allowed that. Um, if we repeal 415, then we are able to have active community members on this board and people who are actively in situations where either the police are harassing them because of demographics or, or whatever the case is. Community members won't leave other community members out hanging to dry. I want to go back to something that you said. If we pass one police reform bill, 
that kind of like puts us on the right path and shows that this is a priority. So what can police reform legislation actually accomplish? It'll be that first little step of creating trust between community and, and a system. There's so many flaws in the system. We see this the system with the flaws as it is, and all we want to do is fix it. It's not one of those situations where we can just go in, tear the whole thing down and start from scratch. But we understand that fixing everything little by little will eventually get us somewhere. And and that's just a realistic approach that we can do today. I'm a mother, um, so I need a realistic approach. Um, my goal for, for me personally is to have complete police reform to where I'm comfortable enough to let my 18-year-old child out of the house. Right now, I'm glad she's not 18. I'm not comfortable with letting her out of the house. Well, Ray, you talked about some bills that we're seeing in Utah this year. What sorts of policy changes are you seeing across the country that you would like to see here in Utah at some point? There's a conversation in works right now. Um, so in Oregon, they have this program called Cahoots, and it's a mental health care workers. They respond to uh, mental health crises. And so what that does is it takes all of that scope of work away from the, the police. And so we don't have police responding to mental health crises. Your cousin Bobby, that was the situation with him, right? Yeah, his was a, a mental health crisis, and his girlfriend at the time had called the police on him. The officer shot him about seven times for having a fishing knife on him, and he was at a fishing pond. I feel like if we had a program here where um, we had responsible mental health care workers and, and health care providers responding to these calls, my cousin could be here today and advocating and, and helping others who were in situations that he he could relate to. You mentioned you're a mother and you have a four-year-old. What do you want policing to look like when they're grown up? Oh, in the perfect world, we don't need police. That's in the perfect world. And I would do anything to give Jalen the perfect world. Ray said that ideally Utah wouldn't even need police. So these policies that are aiming to reform the police don't really fit in with that ultimate vision that she has. But there's very often a difference between people's ideal worlds and what's actually possible in the real world that we all live in, which Ray definitely recognizes. And she sees these bills as small steps towards that goal that can still have really big impacts in people's lives. Yeah. And Ray mentioned a couple of specific things. For one, she talked about repealing a ban on community police oversight boards. And that law actually came from a bill that passed two years ago in the Utah legislature. Now, there is a civilian review board in Salt Lake City, but it's appointed by the mayor. And Ray says that's a conflict of interest because the mayor also appoints the police chief. There's a bill this year that would allow the creation of an elected nonpartisan police oversight board. So that would effectively repeal this law that Ray was talking about. What about body cameras? Those were really big in the aftermath of the 2014 Black Lives Matter protests, which sprung up after police killed Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Do Utah police officers have to wear body cameras? Some of them do. 
Not every agency in the state has body cams, though. I've heard that they're really expensive. And, you know, if you're a smaller police department, maybe you don't have enough funding for them. Right now, there's no statewide standard for releasing body cam footage. For example, in Salt Lake City, police will release it within 10 business days after an incident happens. But that's just a Salt Lake City policy, and it's not the case everywhere else. A bill this year would require police departments across the state to release footage in 10 days if those police departments have body cams to use. Okay, we've heard from an activist with one perspective on this issue, but there are lots of different people who have lots of different opinions about police reform. What about the police? What do they think? Well, Sonia, I'm sure not every police officer has the exact same feelings about police reform. But I asked Ian Adams that question. He's the executive director for the Utah Fraternal Order of Police. It's a statewide organization that lobbies on behalf of police officers. He says police training and policies have changed a lot over the years. Policing is a responsive institution in a lot of ways in that it has to constantly adapt to new problem sets that it's encountering. You know, coming out of 2020, I think it would be naive to say that, like, Every cop is just really eager for every reform proposal that comes across the, the wire because some of those reforms were really bad ideas or lacked any kind of evidence base to expect success from them. But that's why we have organizations like mine, the Utah FOP, where we can sort of consolidate how the line officer is thinking about their job, what they're encountering day to day, and translate that into language that policymakers and lawmakers can find agreeable and that we can find common ground. So Ian thinks it really depends on what exactly you mean by police reform. Yeah. And he says generally police want there to be less use of deadly force, too. So I asked him what he thought would make a difference in that. The most important tool for us to get anywhere right now is better and more data. And what I mean by better is consistent and statewide and continuous collection. Right. We can't continue to respond to these things with no basis of numbers to even understand the extent of the issues that we're talking about. And Angela Romero does have a bill that gets us, you know, closer to that goal. It's still not in my mind enough, and I don't think anybody thinks it's enough, but enough in this case is gonna involve actual money being spent by the state legislators towards that goal. We're going to have to, at some point, adopt the practices of other states and begin really rigorously collecting this data so that we stakeholders on all sides know the context of what they're talking about. Right now, we don't. Basically, what Ian's saying is that first, we need data so that we can understand exactly what the problem really is, and then use that data to figure out what would fix that problem. Yeah, that's exactly right. Ian mentioned a bill by Democratic Representative Angela Romero as a way to get to that goal. But it seems like everything in this policy area, at least the way that it's being talked about right now, is incremental, is taking these little steps. Right. It's kind of about meeting people in the middle, I think. Mm -hmm. And I actually talked to Representative Romero about that bill. Basically, it will require law enforcement agencies to keep track of their use of force. They'll use a federal database to log it. And Romero echoed what Ian said that the data will show if there's excessive use of force, and if it is a problem, the data will help them address it. We've covered a lot today so far. 
we've looked at how protests can turn into actual policy, like repealing a ban on community police oversight boards, releasing body cam footage faster, and the need for better data on police brutality. Is there anything else you think we should know about police reform this year? Well, like I said, there are lots of bills that we didn't even cover in this episode. We only got to a few of them. But I wanted to add one more perspective to this conversation. Ray Duckworth mentioned that ideally there would be no police. That's how she envisions her ideal world. But she thinks each police reform bill that passes is a good step. I talked to someone from the group Decarcerate Utah. Their main goal is to abolish the police altogether, to take power away from them. They said if a bill gives more money to police, like by funding de-escalation training or data collection, that doesn't help them reach that goal. That just continues to support the police. They said the way to get there to abolishing them altogether is by changing perspectives that society even needs police and that communities can take care of their own safety. That's a pretty radical idea. What would a world without police even look like? Sonia, I don't think we know yet. (laughs) This message about abolishing or defunding the police really just hit the mainstream last year. Like the first time I heard of it was with these conversations around protests. Yeah, I I don't think that I had heard of it either until this summer. And then all of a sudden, like my social media feeds were blowing up with this with conversations about this idea. Yeah. And it's still really complicated and complex. And defunding and abolishing the police can look different to lots of different people, though. Generally, defunding the police means redirecting money from them to social services. It's this idea that by funding things that can help alleviate crime, like mental health services and getting people out of poverty, that we won't need police as much. But there's a range of ideas about police reform and what the role of police should be in communities. And Sonia, I think that's a conversation that will continue well past this legislative session. Okay, Sonia, week two of the 2021 general session down. Tell us about what else happened this week. Okay, just like every week, I've got three things for you to pay attention to. One, Utah Attorney General Sean Reyes is facing a possible impeachment. A Democratic lawmaker said earlier this week that he plans to sponsor an impeachment resolution as a way to investigate Reyes. And he wants to investigate any connections Reyes might have to the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, as well as his attempts to challenge the presidential election results. Number two, most kindergarten and first graders in the Salt Lake City School District went back to school for the first time since the pandemic started in March. All the grades in that district will be back on February 8th. Now, Salt Lake City was the only district in the state that never reopened for in-person learning, and they received a lot of pressure from lawmakers and from parents to reopen. And number three is a bill that has now passed the House, and it would allow Utahns to carry a concealed weapon without a special concealed carry permit. The bill's supporters say the state needs to trust legal gun owners more to use their weapons properly. 
concealed carry permits actually require people to get a background check and take a gun safety course. So critics of the bill are concerned about getting rid of that requirement. That does it for this week on 45 Days. I'm Emily Means. And I'm Sonia Hudson. The show was edited by Caroline Ballard and produced by Roddy Nickbor. Chelsea Naughton is our digital editor. Trisha Bobita is KUER's podcast manager. Our news director is Elaine Clark, and the station manager is Joel Meyer. 45 Days is a production of KUER. We also send out a newsletter every Monday that recaps the previous week in politics. You can sign up for that newsletter at 45days.org. That's the number 45days.org. Talk to you next week. From KUER.